Well, we survived last week. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It was scary. It was a little bit scary. I'm not going to lie. I, I expected at least somebody to get angry. But actually, I mean, you and I agreed when we actually listened to the episode, it was better than what we were afraid of. Yeah, I mean, we we skirted it so well. I'm actually really proud of us for pulling that off. Well, I think that part of the reason for that is, I mean, neither of us is assholes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's kind well, of well at, at least it, well we're, we're 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 not assholes but we still do have higher expectations of humanity and i think that's what made it good yeah i mean i've I've listened to some um did i say let's get weird yet yeah let's get weird <laughs> uh, sure. i've been listening to sam harris's podcast have you ever heard of him or listened to anything from him uh, why does that name sound so familiar He's a neuroscientist, but he kind of functions more as a philosopher. Um, he did a podcast called Waking Up. Has a podcast called Waking Up. He did a book called Waking Up. He did a book called The End of Faith. He's a fairly well-known public intellectual. Mm, okay, and he's also gotten himself into trouble because he's um, put himself into the fray um, in regards to Islamophobia. Uh-huh. He got in a, in, Oh, yes. That's why I know him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He got Fair in enough. a public fight with, or I shouldn't say he got in a fight, but Ben Affleck called him a racist on Bill Maher. Yep. Um, and my perception of him, I knew who he was before all that. Um, I can't remember. I think it was something in relation to Christopher Hitchens, who I was a, a fairly decent fan of um, while he was alive. And uh, I kind of always thought the guy was kind of pompous. And when I kind of heard about that stuff, I never saw the segment that happened there and I kind of never understood. And I, so I just, I had a really, a fairly low opinion of the guy. And someone I have a fairly high opinion of is Dak Shepard, the actor who has a wonderful podcast called Armchair Expert. And Dax is, Dax is fantastic because he has conversations with people and then kind of, you know, catches himself and goes, Oh, you're right. I'm totally wrong about that. Which I, which I really appreciate. And he's him and his co-host Monica are always talking about their respect for Sam Harris and his podcast. So I started listening to the podcast. Sorry, this is a long explanation. <laughs> and, <laughs> and at first, you know, he talks about Islam a lot. And at first I was, I remember, I felt like, yeah, oh my God, yeah, he is kind of a racist, isn't he? Ooh, I don't know if I can keep listening to this. But he wasn't like um, overtly racist. It was kind of like um, a sheet, you know, like there's these there's these people who believe that they're liberal-minded, but underneath it, there's actually some st- steeped um, prejudices that they can't see. And that's kind of what I assumed he was. But the more I started listening to the podcast and the more I heard him get into conversations, I realized I'm like, Oh no, he's not at all. In fact, he's the opposite. He's just sure. talking about something that's very, very difficult to talk about without people automatically assuming you're a racist and sometimes making missteps. And what I find really 
particularly interesting about him is he will get himself into conversations with people he's pretty sure he's going to disagree with. And he makes sure to steer the conversation into places that they will disagree so that he can learn from the conversation. Interesting. Which is a very respectable thing. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is because this week he had, um, I listened to it this week. I shouldn't say it aired this week. He had on, what is the woman's name? Rebecca Traster. And she wrote a book about um, women and anger and a lot to do, it has a lot to do with the Me Too movement. And um, so I assume it probably has something to do with Time's Up as well. And they had a very interesting conversation. And it was weird to be hearing this conversation right after the conversation that we had last week because for for the most part, they're green and, and she's very, very articulate and she articulates some really great points about power dynamics. And the way she explains it all, it's, it's really probably one of the most articulate explanations of power dynamics that I've heard in a long time. But what was very interesting about it is two people that actually think agree at about 80%, there's a point where I think she got excited about the conversation and she kind of stopped hearing what he was saying and how quickly it became a disagreement between two people who agree pretty much and him asking questions and then her, the moment she stopped hearing him, I noticed her taking the worst out of things he was saying because they had lost that connection. And I thought it was a really, really good explanation of how difficult these conversations can be, even between people who probably agree 90%. This is typically why I don't have these conversations, even with people I I agree with, um, for the most part, just because at some point it becomes too emotionally charged for people to listen anymore. And I think once the listening stops, then the argument begins. And at that point, nothing gets accomplished. And that's really tough. Um, because I mean, I really do want to. I, I really do think that that at some point, the only way that we can have a reasonable political discourse is to for people to actually listen to each other. But you know, that's that's asking a lot. That's asking for people to meet on an emotional neutral ground, um, and from an idealistic neutral ground as well, um, where you can have some level of objectivity um, that allows you to not even necessarily see the other person's point, but to see all the points or to see. Um, the, the scope of history and how it plays into this, or to see how the evolution of culture or the evolution of certain religions plays into this. You know, one of the things I don't, I don't like just as a standard rule is people who defend things without understanding them at all. Um, and I say this about, you know, I'm going to be very, very careful about how I say this, um, but Islam is one of those things. You know, I, when I was in college, I studied sociology and theology quite a bit. And the misconceptions from both sides of the equation, both people who um, protect Islam as well as people who defend it, um, the perspectives are so narrow and most of the time uneducated that it's hard to have a real conversation about it. I think what's also really difficult is we were kind of tainted or stained by a lot of the way that questions and discussion have functioned within the public discourse. And I don't mean on particular topics, but I mean literally the way that we talk to each other publicly to the point where somebody could be asking a question that's an actual question, but the person hears it as, I know where you're going with this and it's going to be an accusation. And that automatically sure. taints and, and swerves the conversation into an argument. You know, like I could be saying, well, what do you think the solution for it is? 
And I might actually be asking you, what do you think the solution for it is? But you can translate that as an attack. And, and I think that that's where things really fall apart is when we stop actually listening to the words. And, and also, um, this works on both a micro and a macro level too. Um, in my current relationship, we're having that same discussion about not assuming where the other person is taking the conversation before the person's taken it there. And I think that, you know, familiarity breeds that. It, it breeds both a, a comfort and a contempt at the same time. And I think both of those are basically the same side or two different sides of the same coin. Um, and I think because I, I think a, a lot of modern media has, has plays into that too, as well, you know, this less than 24 hour news cycle that we're currently living in just floods us with so much information that our brain has to forcibly fill in the blanks in order to make sense out of the world. And I think that that trickles into everything that we do, including um, interpersonal relationships as well. So it's both a micro and a macro level problem. Also find there's a huge problem with the fact that we aren't in our heads enough. We, 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 everybody thinks that they think too much. You know, people say, I think too much. Um, yeah. But most people don't. And, yeah, and I agree with that. We, and, <laughs> And it's not that we don't think a lot because we're always thinking. There's always something coming out of our brains, but we don't think for extended periods of time. We've, uh, we've, we've parsed out everything so that everything is interrupted. And when you really sit, and I've had to do this recently with certain things, and just I find like I'm trying to think about something, and I'm going, why can't I think about this? And I'm like, oh, because I have the TV on in the background. It's on mute. And I have a podcast playing and then there's a, a car outside and a guy blowing leaves. And there's like 15 things between me and me being able to think. And I have to turn off and mute and push away as much as I can and just sit there. And if we don't... Man, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited actually that we're talking about this because I took some very clear steps um, for avoiding that this week, but carry on. I've, I've got a, I've mm. got a whole thing on that. It's pretty fun. Good. Because there's stuff I want to talk about with that too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically I, th- I think the problem is that we, you know, we talked about it last week with the reaction. I'm actually, I, in the episode, I say the word reactionaryism and so do you. But then when I did the show notes, I wrote the re- word reactionism and both technically come up if you do a search. So I'm not sure which is the actual word we're <laughs> supposed to be using here. But when we're being reactionary, it is almost always because of what you're saying there is because we know that we're defending something Some, somewhere inside of us. We know we're defending something we don't really understand. So we have to be strong. We have, you know, it's like you're putting up a strong front so that nobody pushes. People do it with the political discussions all the time. Like, I don't like this guy. And then if somebody actually pushes them, you find out that they can't really think of any examples why. And, and it's kind of sad because we're arguing about things that maybe most of us don't even necessarily believe. Sure. And, and I think that one of the primary reasons why is because we live in such a, a, a bullet-pointed soundbite culture that long, long narratives get lost. Not even long narratives, medium narratives get lost. You know, And, and I think that, that the political discourse plays into that um, the, the news cycle plays into that, even how we consume media um, on a general basis. You know, songs have gotten shorter. Uh, movies are, are a very specific length now. And a lot of the time, the length, the, the length sacrifices things like narrative and character development um, over flash and, and coolness. Um, and I, I, one of the, the, the biggest 
things that I kind of pride myself in, and maybe it's because you know both you and I are avid readers, um, voracious readers, actually, um, is that I have a very long attention span, and I think that that's remarkably useful for being able to digest complex problems. And I think that's part of the reason why people have difficulty. Um, understanding the, the the political spectrum of the political process, or you know the 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 link that you sent me earlier about you know how hard it is to write a novel, it's because people can't keep their attention on something for that long, and and really dive into the minutia of the importance of detail. Yeah, I think also in a way the idea of narrative plays into all of that too, in the sense that uh, we're obsessed with narrative, that everything has to be a story now. Everything has to have a story. And, you know, like, I'm sorry, but if you open a physics book, there's not going to be a story. It's just facts and information and it's boring and you got to work your way through it. And it gets exciting when you start understanding it. And sure. And that's one of our big problems is we forget that some of the real excitement comes later. You have to earn it. We expect everything to be exciting up front. We expect a veneer of, of flash, like you said. But sometimes some things are gross and they take forever and they're awful. And then you get to the end and you're like, wow, I learned so much. Yeah, I I think about the writers that define my narrative sensibilities and all of them are just bludgeoningly slow. You know, like I I think of Dostoevsky and, and, and Kafka and and. You know, even even one of our subjects, um, well, two of our subjects, actually, Cheryl Strait and, and Murakami, um, were all patient writers in that sense. They all took their sweet freaking time in order to achieve something in a narrative, and there's such there's such a joy in the revelation of it. You know, there's a, there's a joy in the, the the bits and pieces of of character development that happen along the way, which actually kind of brings me back to one of the first things that I ever wanted to talk to you about on this iteration of the show and never got to. Um, which is the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how remarkably patient they are with certain characters. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see the way that they actually work things out. In, well, it's, it's like they actually somebody woke up one day and go and went, oh, we can do with movies what we do with, what we do with comic books. And I don't mean what people interpret that before is like, oh, this looks like one, this one feels like one. I mean that they can do what you said, draw things out. You know, why is Daredevil a great character? Because he's gone through so many people's hands and we've seen him develop over decades. And to be able to start to attempt to do that with film and television, it's, I mean, the great example of that as well within that universe on television is the show Gifted. Oh, yeah, sure. And they're doing a remarkable job of, of showing what it's like for the mutants to exist in a society that hates them. It's, it's a metaphor for racism, for immigration, and all this. But also, at its core, it's really just a great story about being a mutant and, and how over time, hiding and being on the run really starts to break you down, even if you have superpowers. I want you to, at some point, I want you to do this. Um, pick a character, and I, I have one to suggest for you, but pick a character and follow their story through the MCU. So in particular, I'd like you to, be, only because I think his arc is really kind of obvious, vast, and very comic booky. go through Thor and watch the first Thor movie, 
then Avengers, then the second Thor movie, and so on and so forth, until you get to the latest one and watch his development. It's fascinating. Yeah, I can even like having not paid attention from that that perspective, I can already say that he becomes more human. Yeah, definitely. And and they took their time. I can't believe that. I mean, it's 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 a narrative masterpiece in that sense. I mean, even I mean, obviously Tony Stark has a similar journey as well. Um, and so does Captain America, but I think Thor's is probably the most full 180. Um, he goes from being this this arrogant, shitty god um, who sees the world as beneath him to being this really hilariously humble, comical, and almost jaded, but extraordinarily hopeful person all at the same time. And and even towards the last Avengers movie, there's a hopelessness to him that that you wouldn't expect. And if you if you watch the first movie and then and then see the 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 last Avengers movie, you would think it's two entirely different characters. And that is remarkable to see. I think that's the only one I haven't seen yet is the last of, of all the Marvel movies, I think is the last one, the Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah. Whenever that comes on stream and I'll be seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go to the theaters. Um, before we we veer off too much, did you, uh, actually, did you want to go deeper on that before I change topics? Nope, I'm done. Okay. I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, making headspace. Mm. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's, you know, obviously with the way my world is structured now with my job and with the media and with the, poli- the political stuff, um, you know, me diving back into music and, and having uh, my other interests like photography and golf and various things like that. I, every single day I'm pulled in 20 different directions and it's not uncommon for me to literally bounce around from space to space, both literally, literally and figuratively um, within the span of maybe two hours. I could be in three completely different locations doing enti- three entirely different things with three different groups of people. And it's really easy to fall into a subtle, constant anxiety when you're doing that. Um, and I felt that it was making me a very defensive person just because I didn't have the headspace to keep it all straight without having to focus all the time. And I think that's subtly stressful for everyone who lives that life. And I think most people live some form of that. Uh, I might have an extreme version of it um, with what's going on now, but um, I think for the most part, everyone's lives are hectic to some, to some extent, and it's because of how the world's built. So in order to make myself get out of that space. Um, I'm writing a blog again, and I am literally carving out specific chunks of time where I don't listen to anything else. I don't watch anything else. I don't talk to people. I don't do work stuff. I only work on the blog. And I have only done it twice this week, so I'm barely starting that this week. And even within the two chunks of time that I've already done it, I already feel much more at peace with myself, um, giving myself the, the the brain space to kind of just lay a story out and being able to construct it um, from, from beginning to end without any interruption. That was really difficult for me not to start laughing in the middle of because we're in the exact same place. I was afraid that if I started <laughs> laughing, you'd lose their train of thought. I've literally been doing the exact thing. I mean, like the notes in front of me, if you could see the post-its I have in front of me, that's one of them. <laughs> Literally the word freedom. Um, so one of the things that I've been doing, this is this will be in three parts. So I'll just do one part and then you, we'll see what you think of it and bounce around. But uh, the first thing that was, I had this idea and it was just literally a mind. I, I texted you about this. It was literally just a mind experiment. But I got, I got to this point where I'm like, hmm, 
what if I used my Reddit page, the Holy Fool Reddit page, as the blog? And instead of blogging on the website or blogging on Medium, blog on that page. And one of the first reasons that I went to that is because I was actually looking at apps that made it really easy. Something that I could jump into, write a couple things, and then just post. The Squarespace um, blogging app for the phone, it sucks. It's too many clicks. And the same with the WordPress one. And there's so many other different iterations. And I'm like, these are all too much. They're not as fast as Twitter. Because my goal was, what if instead of taking... I actually wrote a post about this. The first one I did on Reddit. What if I took these ideas that are you know, like the size of a post-it, one sentence, you know, a couple sentences that I would normally just spit out on Twitter and Facebook, instead of just spitting them out and being uh, reactionary, what if I sat on them? And then when I sat down once a day, or, you know, maybe not every day, but as, as often as I can, sit down and go, hmm, can I expand this into maybe just a paragraph? Maybe just two paragraphs. Not big, long blogs or anything, but just move them beyond 140 characters. So I was like, oh, what, what app am I going to do for that? And the Reddit, the Reddit, I mean, I've been saying Reddit this whole time, haven't I? Um, yeah. I don't mean Reddit. <laughs> you might want to start over. It's Patreon. Yeah, also. Patreon. Um, the Patreon app is it's probably the easiest to do. It's literally like two clicks. I go in, post. It's really beautiful looking, and I can post it. The only thing that sucks about it is it's there's no way to automatically post those to Facebook and Twitter. So I have to go and manually do those. But anyways, my whole point there was to think if I could get out of that space of spinning those things out in short spurts, that it would require me to think more. And then if I had, if I did it on, on, almost said Reddit again, if I did it on Patreon, then I can do the shorter ones as public things, but then, you know, that gets something longer. I can, and I feel like, oh, this is a more fully fleshed out piece that could go behind the wall for people that are patrons. And I just thought it was an easier way instead of asking people, you know, kind of it frees up space in my head by not having to tell people, well, if you want to see this, go here. And if you want to see this, go here. And if you want to see this, go over here. And it's, it's really funny because that's exactly what I wanted to do. Is to just start right. blogging, maybe not every day, but maybe with the goal of hoping I can get to the point where I do something every day. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm definitely not requiring myself to do one thing a day. I'm kind of easing into it just to ensure that I succeed at it. Um, so what I'm, and also, by the way, it's also good to have a buddy to do this with too. And I have a covert buddy that I'm doing this with where, it, you know, do what you think is manageable for your life. You know, don't overdo it because the last thing you want is to go for a big victory and fail at it. So what I'm doing is I want at least for now one blog post a week. And then, you know, as I feel more comfortable and I get back into the swing of things, then I progressively increased it um, just to ensure that I can I can hold myself to it every week and, and continually produce um, what I think is is content that's at the level that I, I, I want to produce. You know, what I was looking at maybe an hour ago, there's this thing called blot.im. And it is probably the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. It's essentially, it's a blog, but it you don't have to sign on to anything to blog. It, it creates a folder in your Dropbox. And if you drop in a text file, it publishes it. 
If you drop in an HTML file, it publishes it. If you drop in an image, it publishes it. If you drop in a Markdown document, it publishes it. What? It's it's amazing. So the reason this is appealing to me, which is probably the second part of what I was saying, is I want the idea of instead of feeling like I'm inside of social media and I'm caught in, you know, I got to read this and reply to this and then post this and do all that. I want to be in the place of creation. I want to be back in the stacks making stuff. And I want to be able to just make stuff and then have it automatically go out. And it, and it's one of those ugly moments where I'm like, well, that does exactly that. But then I have my Patreon idea and I can't do both. <laughs> so what the hell? <laughs> uh, do you think ultimately Patreon... Well, I mean, obviously from, from the blog's perspective, I mean, I'm sorry, from the uh, show's perspective, I think the Patreon makes more sense. Yep. Uh, but man, that's that's enticing though. I, I love the idea of just dropping, you know, dropping things straight in and not having to worry about it otherwise. That's kind of remarkable. Yeah, I think what I'll probably end up doing is just kind of like putting myself in the headspace where that's what I'm doing, even if that's not what I'm doing. Just start collecting things in a text editor and okay. then just going, oh, drop this one into Patreon today <laughs> instead of, you know, drop it into the Dropbox. Okay, I'm just copying and pasting this in and then probably send a link over to Buffer and have Buffer push it out or something like that. Um, or or Edgar. Probably Edgar. But uh it it's it it all kind of revolves around this. The first piece that I wrote on on Reddit, damn it, on Patreon, they have the same almost the same color scheme too, which is really what's screwing me up. Uh, you know, one's like one's orange and the other one is like kind of orange. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the first thing I wrote on, on Patreon, I was talking about how I started using pocket again because I'm, I just want to start collecting stuff. And then that was another way for me. This is the third part of what I was going to tell you about is when I find things that I want to share with, you know, the audience on social media and stuff. I want them to go out, but I don't want to just like continually be jumping into those apps to post them out. So I wanted to find a way that even though I'm actively looking at the stuff and reading it, that I can go, yes, this one is worth them seeing. This one's worth them seeing. And Pocket's a great way to do that because I've been doing it with, um, it's either If This and That or Zapier, I can't remember. But basically when I, when I star something in Pocket, it'll automatically queue it up to post out. So I can read within that app and not feel like I'm jumping between apps. So I can sit there and maybe read three things and go, I like all three of these and know that those three are going to go out for people to see. Huh. So, I mean, are, are, do they all funnel back to the same place? Uh, you mean to the same social media? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're both. everything's going to go to Facebook and Twitter. I got it. Okay. And then if it's something, um, unfortunately, there's not a a way to automate this and I can understand why, but if it's something for the Patreon community, uh, see, I did it backwards this time, something for the Reddit community, uh, like, you know, something weird, then I have to go post that manually. But that's not that big of a deal because I don't run across stuff that's gold enough to put on there that often. Which actually, I want to tell you a real quick sidebar. It's really funny. I was looking at the Patreon backend because Patreon and Reddit, 
connect right now. So if you know somebody becomes a patron on our Patreon and then they go over to the random badassery pod subreddit, they have like a flare that tells people that they're a patron. That's like a, a new thing that they just did between the two of them. But when I was looking at the back end, it's you know, I see the connection for those the flare, but then it was like suggesting me to, it I, for some reason it didn't understand that I already had a subreddit. So it was suggesting a subreddit for me. And this is spooky weird because I've never written this anywhere. So I don't know where I got it. Guess what it suggested as the name for our subreddit? Man, I feel like I'm going to get this wrong. Of course, you're guessing out of with no clues. <laughs> you want me to just tell you? Yeah, please tell me. <laughs> Let's get weird. Really? No way. I don't know how it got. The only thing I can think is somebody actually listened to an episode and then suggested that as the name because I haven't written that anywhere, nowhere. Wow, what are the chances? That's odd. That's weird. <laughs> that is that's that is actually odd. I don't understand that at all. That's amazing. Yeah, it was very strange. And I was like, at first I was thinking, I'm like, oh, maybe it just accidentally connected to a, it's a coincidence and it just acted to a pre-existing subreddit. I went over that subreddit doesn't exist. It was telling me to make it. That's crazy. Yeah, really crazy. I, I assume you did it. No, I didn't. We already have one. I don't need two. <laughs> Speaking of simplifying things, um, yeah, true. And while you know, while we're in the middle of this, if you're a listener and you like the weird stuff, go to the random badassery pod subreddit. It's all one word. Join that. Um, post some weird stuff too. Share stuff and uh, Patreon too. You know, become a patron. Support us. Support what we do. I'm doing. Eight episodes a month right now. So support to help me do that would be amazing because one day I would love to have somebody else do all the editing. That would be, oh God, that would be amazing. That's one of the things that's really been weighing on me this week. I really, really want to farm out the editing. It's killing me. Yeah, man, I can't even imagine. I mean, how much total time do you think that takes you a week between the eight shows? A, well, a week between the two shows. There's only two yeah, shows. Yeah, a week. between the two shows, yeah. Sure. Um, 12 to 15 hours. And that's 12, 12 to 15 solid hours. And that's like two full days of your life. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because even though we record these on Wednesdays or Thursdays, they go out on Sundays. I'm try- Usually at the same time, I'm trying to get the Creative Minds episode edited because that uh, those ones take a little bit longer. I, I tend to leave our ums and burps and stuff in here because I think it's it's more natural here and it's just the two of us. But um, word stumbling and stuff like that, I try to fix that in creative minds because I want the guests to feel that they sound their best. Whereas here, we don't have problems with showing our words. But sure. <laughs> it usually does mean that I'm juggling two episodes at the same time. And it's... I mean, yesterday when we, you know you and I were going to record yesterday, and then you couldn't do it. It was actually really good because I wasn't done editing the episode for Creative Minds that came out today. Man, so and I was looking at the pricing though. Man, the pricing is unbelievable for this for editing, at least from professionals, which is what you would want. Otherwise, you do it yourself. Um, one of them it was like two hundred and sixty dollars a month for a weekly for weekly episodes. But they don't go through and listen and remove ums and stuff like that. And you only get three edits. 
that doesn't even seem close to worth it. Well, they're doing stuff that I necessarily wouldn't want them to do, which I, I don't know if I can do an all cart. But they first of all, the thing I would want them to do is do all the EQing because I'm not the best at it. Every time I, it comes out different. <laughs> um, so having, having them do the EQ would be great. But then they, you know, they obviously they'll throw in your intros and your outros and all that stuff, which is time. But then they also will do your show notes for you. Some of them will do transcriptions for you. And then they will post it to your host for you too. And I, I don't I don't see the need for that. I would just post it myself, but and I, I don't do transcriptions yet, but if it was a, if it was a something that came free, I'd probably do it. Yeah, I wonder if there is an a la carte option. I'm sure I'm sure there's a solution out there somewhere considering how big the podcast world is now. Well, to get the edit um, from the same service to get the editing quality I want where I'd be able to have them listen through, remove all the ums and stumbles, and then be able to tell them, remove this section, remove this section, um, you know, stuff like that. It's uh, $467 a month. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, hey, guys, get on that Patreon right now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Wow. Yes, and that's that's a difficult thing, too, which I, I would actually... Good time to ask your advice on this. I like the fact that this show just goes wherever the hell it wants. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, number one priority, get the podcasts out. Number one priority. Patreon means nothing if I don't make the main product. Which is the sure. which is the eight episodes, right? It doesn't mean anything. There is no holy fool productions unless it's producing something. But then yeah. people seem to not want to just support things that are already being made that they get for free. So they want to feel like they're getting some bonus stuff. And I can kind of understand it. It's a little bit annoying because I see it in myself and I'm like, wow, we're spoiled. Um, but I can understand it at the same time. And I, I support one person on Patreon and I actually never look at their bonus content. I just support them because I like them. And it's, it's not a huge, it's not a huge monthly charge, but um, the thing is when I look at those two things, at times I see those coming at odds, which is making sure that the podcasts go out, which half the times, like I just said, I'm running myself raw or I'm like, okay, I'm getting this stuff out, but man, I'm on the wire sometimes. And then trying to find a space to do extra stuff for the Patreon supporters. That's, I mean, how do you think that... What are your, what's your advice there? Well, I think you kind of answered your own question. Um, one of the reasons... The reason you support that particular person is because you like them. And I think that we don't do enough stuff that makes us visible to people. Um, you know, whether it be us being at events with people or, or doing things in certain places or hosting certain events. It's, you know, it goes back to the, the stuff that we originally wanted to incorporate with the network itself um, so that people feel like they have a vested interest in us as people. Because um, I feel like for me, um, the, the three people I support on Patreon are people I, I like as well. You know what I mean? Like one in particular, I don't even listen to their podcast anymore, but I like them as a person and I like what they're doing. So I, I support them. Um, and I think that the, the nail on the head is that we have to become people to people and we can't just be a show. How do I find the time for that? <laughs> I don't, that's a good point. I mean, it goes you know back I mean? to like, your thing about being in three places in the same night. 
yeah, I mean, that's, we, we have to figure out a way to make ourselves, uh, how do I even say this? Um, do things that incorporate us into, um, you know, like go to open mics or whatever it is that, that leads us to be able to do that as well. Um, so that we're not changing our routines necessarily. We're just changing our priority on our activities. But I mean, it, you know, for you, it's tough because with the amount of editing that you do, it's hard to carve out pieces of time. Um, and, you know, this, and, and people forget that this is entirely a labor of love for you. So at the moment, there's, there's no monetary value in it, um, which means that you have all of your side work that you need to do in order to just support your regular life. Right. Um, and so, so making the decision to add yet another thing that then transitions the show from a hobby to, you know, a living is, is, is that's the secret sauce. That's the reason why most podcasts fail is because they can't keep doing it. Yeah. I was looking at something the other day. They said something like uh, 12% of podcasts on iTunes have one episode. <laughs> Yeah, sure. And then I think it's like thirty or forty percent have less than twenty. And oh, it's I, I think it's higher than that. I mean, I, I, I there are quite a few podcasts that I, I have. I every probably six months or so, I go through and I purge my podcast list. And most of the ones I purge are not because I'm not interested in the content, but because they're just not producing content anymore. Yeah, I mean, like technically, <laughs> this was a dead show. Yeah, that's true. Um. Yeah, it's just, it's really hard. I mean, like, I don't think people understand literally, like, it sounds like I'm complaining, but um, I wouldn't do this stuff if I didn't enjoy at least part of it. Some of it sucks. I'm not going to lie. Um, like doing, planning all the social media posts for the week. I hate doing that. It's so boring. <laughs> sure. It's, uh, but I mean, it's it's like, if I look for pockets of time, the only pockets of time that I have left are times that I'm sleeping or <laughs> or the one to two hours late, late, late at night that I get to watch TV and just be a human being, which is usually from 12.15 to about 2.15 in the morning. That means you, you just can't be a human being. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have no time left. And I mean, and I'm trying to, you know, and I'm, I'm juggling a lot of stuff. It's not just I'm juggling work and the podcasts. I'm also juggling exercise and trying to stay in shape. So at least trying to get an hour of that in every day. So, you know, I don't croak because that's kind of important. Um, Trying to work in time to meditate, trying to work back in time to do yoga. It's, it's, it's literally just keeps running out of time. And what's really scary for me right now is winter's coming. Call back to uh, game of Thrones, (laughs) but uh, I have, I get seasonal affective disorder, which means the weather really affects my mood and my energy levels. So I have to be, uh, I have to fight extra hard in the winter to do things because literally I, I turn into a slug. <laughs> I realized that today I was like walking, today was like the first like pretty cold day in the house. And I was walking back from the kitchen and I went, I'm like, oh, I got to. I'm cold. I'm going to put on a sweater. And I start to open the closet where I have the sweater. And I just really looking at like the speed that I'm moving. And I'm like, oh no, that time of year is here. <laughs> I'm moving slowly. <laughs> and it was so much effort. I love that you just segued into literally what I want to talk about next, um, which is how the heck do you find 
well, first of all, do you work differently creatively in the winter? And second is how do you, how do you, what is your method for finding the energy or desire or motivation to do creative stuff during the winter? Um, wow. Let me think about that. How I'm different. I'll come back to the different part. I'm not sure I have an answer to that yet. How I work in the winter is really difficult. <laughs> um, things because this last year because i've really become more sedentary um well maybe that's not the right word because i do exercise i've become more home homebody i don't go out very much it's a little bit harder to compare the two because i think the way that i function now most of the year is closer to how i used to function in the winter but essentially it's a lot of bargaining with myself and a lot of transitioning between two things like okay i'm gonna sit and edit i know i can't sit and edit for two hours straight because my back starts to hurt because i have bad posture when i edit no matter how much i try not to so i'm gonna do this for a half hour if i can get through a half hour then i can go sit over there and on my comfortable chair and listen to a podcast for a half hour and then going then go back to editing and then go back to listening to something else and then it's a lot of that or like, I'm going to do this. And if I finish this, then I get to eat a pear or something like that. It's, it's just a lot of bargaining and it's so difficult sometimes. So, so it's basically a collection of if then statements that you allow. So it's a, it's a consequence based value system where if you do something, then you can reward yourself with another thing. Yeah. Or sometimes punish myself. Oh, sure. Which means, I say I'm going to go over and, and listen to a podcast for a half hour and I end up playing like some tower defense game for an hour and 15 minutes. Well, that means now I have to edit later into the night. Uh, I see. So I punish future self. There was that Simpsons episode where, where Homer said something about like, screw future Homer, you know? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. Um, I find that because I can't go outside, I sit for longer periods of time in places and I actually end up doing a lot more creatively. Yeah, it used to be like that, I think. Um, I think it's because it was... Maybe that plays into your part about how things are different. Maybe now because things aren't so different, it doesn't work like that for me anymore because that's the norm now. Mm. So now it requires more. Whereas before it worked because it was different than my active periods. You know, like if I was going out all the time during the summer and stuff, then when winter came around, I'd be like, well, it's winter. And it was almost like I gave my excuse, myself an excuse to work. But now that like my work is like 24, 7, 365 days a year, <laughs> there is no, no difference, I guess. Uh. I don't know. It's difficult. These these are the battles of being a a burgeoning creator in the sense that, like you said, I don't make any money from it yet. Well, I think that the 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 tough part, and I, I assume you fight through this as often as I do, is that it's so hard to make a living as an artist um, on a consistent basis. And you know, we know plenty of artists who are fantastic artists you know i can think of a a few in particular that are 
um, extremely skilled and popular, and some which are even reasonably famous, who literally struggle to pay their rent every month. And and you know, unless you've done this for a living, you know, unless you've tried to produce a podcast or or you know, part of the reason why um, this became a dead show for a while is because I, I started a brand new job and just literally didn't have the time anymore. And so. Um, unless you've really done it, you don't understand how tough it is to continue doing it. Yeah, that's that. I think that's um, that piece that I wrote that I sent you earlier today. That's a part of it that didn't make it in there because it, it just got bloated. But the hardest thing sometimes is that exact word is continuing, especially when it's something like this, when you're not writing a novel, but you're putting out something publicly on a consistent basis. So you're producing something for free all the time, it becomes really difficult to negotiate the willpower to continue uh, because you're going, okay, well, shit, I, I I should have proved that I'm doing this consistently by now, but nobody's, nobody's supporting it yet. So then you start going through, you know, like, do I suck at this? You know, like, is it bad? Um, I mean, I went through this earlier this week. Where I'm like, wow, it might, maybe I'm just not a good podcaster. Maybe I just I'm awful, and that's why nobody <laughs> wants to support it. Um, and, and you go through those loops of of that or self doubt, and then but the the most dangerous loop is the because I'm not making anything from this yet. Maybe this is a waste of my time. Sure. So then you start looking for something else, and I, I've been very guilty of that. I mean, I did 200 days of vlogging, and then I got burnt out from it. And then it was really easy for me to go, this is a waste of my time, (laughs) which it wasn't. I learned a lot, but at that moment I was very susceptible to that idea. And that's where burnout is. You have to be very careful with burnout because it makes you susceptible to those insecurities about what you're doing. That's such a tough, that's such a tough thing to fight though, because I mean, there's, there's, the, the one thing you don't you don't want is to become bitter at the thing that you love, and I think that that's a really easy trap to fall into. You know, part of the and 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 it's almost as dangerous to succeed at something you love as it is to fail at it. Um, you know, photography is a good example of that for me, in that it became my full time job, and so I was doing a lot of photography that I didn't want to do. So there's there's this delicate balance point you know, for, for people who are trying to follow their passions, um, in which you have to make it so that you don't fall out of love with your passions as well. And it's, you have to be very careful with that resent too, because sometimes you can, um, that can bleed into the way that you view your audience too. Sure. Because the silence that you receive or the lack of, um, you know, people jumping immediately to go to support you on Patreon, you know, whatever their actual legitimate reasons are, you can't see those things and you don't know them because you're not them, right? You know, those those people are invisible to you. And because they're invisible to you and you have all these doubts and you have all these fears, it's easy to transfer your doubts and your fears onto those people. And so you start, yeah, so you start asking yourself, what if I suck and all this? Well, if you want to keep going, you can't believe that you suck. So you can't continue to believe that. So you have to create another belief. And then you start wanting to create the belief of like, oh, they're all just apathetic. Or they all just, they're entitled and they want things for free. 
And you have to work through those things too, because that's fear. And that's fear manifesting itself, trying to give you strength by transferring itself in anger. But it is just fear. And, and obviously that's not what's going on because people wouldn't keep coming back and listening to something if they were apathetic. But it's really easy to start believing those things because, you know, you're guessing and you're weak and you're tired and you just want to, you just want something to happen. I, I think it loops back around to something that we talked about very early on, which is, you know, we're so consistently inundated with so much information and so many things, so many different short narratives and, and all this stuff, like our lives just take over. And so from that perspective, like it's, it's the emotions get to you much more quickly and much more severely than you'd want them to. And I feel like doing something creative like this show or something like that also falls into that too, where you, you react emotionally and that's the toughest thing. You know, uh, I know that, you know, when we were initially doing this show and, and, and watching the download numbers go up or down or, you know, it, it, we critically analyzed so many things, um, but we also had our emotions in that too as well. You know, I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd personally be annoyed when people didn't like an episode as much as we liked an episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and in my, in my older years now, um, it wasn't even that long ago, but just with a little bit of, of wisdom, I've started to, to really realize that, you know, it, Ultimately, you have to separate yourself from it. And I think that that's the, the, the smartest thing that we did with this show, for example, is that we're trying to completely emotionally separate our validation, both as people and as artists, from the show itself. You know, like we, we I know that we both make a concerted effort not to, to try to figure out why the show isn't doing better or why it isn't picked up as much traction as we'd want it to, as quickly as we wanted it to. Because it doesn't matter. I mean, we're doing what we love, and and ultimately, as long as we continue to do it and we can can maintain our own personal momentum with it, then eventually it'll find an audience, or it won't. And it sh- and 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 we shouldn't care. Um, of course, that's a big should. Um, in that you know we're humans too. So at the end of the day, we are going to have some kind of emotional reaction to the success or 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 speed of the success of a a, a thing that we're doing. You know, but but the reason why this feels very different to me now is because it doesn't feel like a task. It feels like a conversation with a friend that I would have anyway. And, and in, in this particular case, it's a conversation with a friend that I should have more often. And this makes me have that conversation. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's why I look forward to these episodes every week because it's, it's literally, to me, it's not about making a podcast. (laughs) It's just about talking. I mean, I can, this show, we bounce around so much that it would be impossible to even begin to understand why one episode does better than another. <laughs> because it could be <laughs> one topic in the episode. And and there's also these strange complexities of, you know, like, for example, the last episode had about the same amount of downloads as our first episode. But the second episode had almost double. I don't know why. <laughs> but, but the thing about it, too, is, you know, like we were a little bit worried about um, last week's episode because we went into some um, treacherous waters. But the download numbers for that episode wouldn't have anything to do with the content of that episode because people would have downloaded it before they knew what we talked about. So that means that those numbers are actually a reflection of the popular episode 
the week before. Oh man. Now try to start figuring that stuff out. It doesn't make sense. Well, and then once we have, once we have a, a larger collection of shows, then how do we understand the momentum? You know, like it, it, it might've been like, I remember in, in when we were doing the artist profiles, um, certain episodes like the Murakami episode would then springboard a bunch of episodes after it and so on and so forth it was such a tough thing to con- consistently maintain a grasp on that at some point I just, I, I, I just kind of tried to stop making sense out of it, you know, cause there's a million different ways to analyze it and you never know if any single one of those ways is correct. Well, what's also going back to the, the idea of like trying to hold your, hold your emotions and everything from falling apart on you. What, what I'm probably a little bit too eager to do, but I think most people are too afraid to do is to tweak things that aren't working. Um, you know, like looking at something and looking for pain points, people don't like to do that. I, I've always treated the way, and I think you have too, approached the way that podcasting, approach podcasting more from the perspective of, um, of a startup than of a, a creation, a public art of some sort or whatever you want to call it, a content creation in the sense that I was always ready to pivot. You know, like, oh, this looks like this is probably a better way to go pivot. Um, and we did that a lot with content, which I think was ultimately to our detriment in um, making it really hard for people to follow. But on the back end stuff, I think that if anybody listening is podcasting or thinking about podcasting on the back end, don't be afraid to pivot and don't be afraid to fix pain points. You know, like if you find that, I'll give a good example. I'll give a very concrete example. When I started this season of Creative Minds, before I even started it, I did two months of prep, um, two months of planning. Okay, this is the way this season's going to function. And I interviewed, I think like, 12 people before I even started publishing episodes. And my plan was to have everything edited and ready to publish. That didn't happen. <laughs> but um, I had this other plan. Like, okay, we, Lamb and I had a show previously, a very short run show, tech show called Technical Ramblings. It just didn't work out. We didn't have enough passion for it. And it just kind of fell apart. But I still liked the name and I wanted to do something with it. So I had this shoe. So I wanted to put a foot in it, right? So I said, oh, I have an idea. And this, this was a very good idea at the time from a, from a drawn on paper piece of, um, you know, diagram on paper. So I have, I talked to these people for an hour about creativity or whatever. I don't think I even said creativity. I talked to these people for an hour and then I have an after show and that was going to be technical ramblings. It was for a little bit. And I go over there and I talk to them about 10 or 15 minutes and I ask them all the nerdy questions that I wouldn't ask them in the normal conversation. You know, like, what computer do you have? What app do you use? What guitar is that? What amp is that? What paintbrush is that? And I I thought that that would create an interesting feedback loop because the people that would be interested in the really technical details might want to go back and listen to the other conversation. And the people that wanted to listen to the interesting conversation... I'm sorry, <laughs> listen to the longer <laughs> conversation, m- might want to go listen to the after show. It didn't work out that way. But what I was also doing, this is a two-part thing. I was also, so the, the host, Simplecast, that hosts all of our shows, 
both uh, random badassery and creative minds. They also provide a built-in website. So I already have to upload the files to Simplecast because they're the host and I, the show notes are already there and all of the links and all of that stuff is already there. So it's already on a website for them. But because it's on their thing, you know, it's um, ours is randombadassery.simplecast.com. Because it's on their thing, I don't get any of that search engine optimization. So in other words, if you're looking for Haruki Murakami, you're not going to go to my Holy Fool website. You're going to end up maybe if that if they even index on Google, you might end up on that. So I was doubling all of the show notes onto the Holy Fool website. And I was trying to promote the links to the Holy Fool website instead of to this thing. So I was doing double duty for every show notes. Jeez. So here's where the pivot, this is, sorry, long explanation day today. But um, the reason pivot was important is the first thing I had to realize was after about, I think, not even six, four or five episodes, I was like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) This takes too much time. Too much time for something that's doubling something. So I said, screw it. And I stopped posting on the Holy Fool website. And I just, it goes right to the Simplecast. Saved me so much time, sanity. Sure. Second thing, I had to look at technical ramblings and look at, at Holy Fool. I mean, um, Creative Minds. I'm not going to give actual download numbers. But I'm going to make up imaginary download numbers here. If I had 5,000 on Creative Minds, I only had 50 on Technical Ramblings of downloads, that is. That's, sure. That ratio is about correct with the actual numbers. So all the time to cut that episode. So what I had to do when I had this audio, I had to cut that part because, you know, I interviewed them all at once, both shows. I have to cut those audios in half and then I've got to give them each a separate intro, give them each a separate outro, do separate show notes for each. And then I was also putting it on two different websites. So I was actually quadrupling my work. But when I got rid of the website, I was back to only doubling my work, doing two shows. And then I'm looking and I'm going, mm, only 1% of my audience is jumping to the, bon- to the bonus content or the after show. Is it worth the time that I'm investing to feed 1% of the audience when I could just ask those questions in the show that, I already, that they're already listening to, that 100% of the audience is listening to? And that's where I had to pivot and say, no, I'm killing it. And it's it's awful because my goal was to go into the season and not change anything. But if I didn't change those things, there wouldn't be any podcasts. I would have exploded in the head. Well, then I guess the the, the question then comes when it, when we're talking about these things. You know, most people think of return on investment as as a monetary thing, but time and energy is equally important when you're thinking about that equation. So... You know, in, in that respect, the shows gave you equal amounts of, or I'm sorry, the expenditure on each side of that for you was equal in time and energy, but the result was literally 1% of the other show. Well, and the thing about it too is that 1% of the audience that was listening to Technical Ramblings was probably 100% coming from the other show. Sure. So that one percent, those those 
that 1% of the audience, I was actually creating a, a, a difficulty for them because they had to finish one show and then go over to the other one to listen to the rest. So even, even the part that like, I, even if it was benefiting the audience, it was too much for me. But the fact was, I wasn't even benefiting the audience. I was actually creating an obstacle for them. Sure. So I was doubling my work to, dis, to inconvenience my audience. <laughs> All plans so, don't work out. <laughs> yeah. So, so the lesson learned ultimately, and if you, you know, I used to do this, this interview show way back in the day, and we used to interview, you know, quite a few, few of the um, tech CEOs. Like we got Jeremy Stoppelman, we got Phil Levin, um, you know, both Yelp and uh, Evernote fame. And one of the things they consistently talked about, the, the, the guys who succeeded, um, was always the the resistance they got from within their own organizations about pivoting. But in in every single case, the pivot dramatically affected their success and their continued ability to to operate as a forward moving company. So, you know, it's it it doesn't. I, I guess the the it goes back to an old, old thing that you used to talk about, um, you know, from that old Stephen King book, um, about writing, which is, um, if you, if you want it to work, you got to kill your darlings. Which I actually just watched that movie. Really? Yeah. That's actually sidebar for a second. If, if you guys are interested in the beats, um, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, kill your darlings is probably the best representation of them on film. And Ben Foster's, William Burroughs is, I mean, he literally was William Burroughs. <laughs> I can highly recommend that. And that's a difficult voice to do. But yeah, you have to, you have to be willing to, it was like when I, when, when creative minds, if anybody here is new, you don't know this stuff, but random badassery. <laughs> so creative minds was originally random badassery. Um, the original, this is really hard to explain. Basically, uh, what happened was Pam and I did two seasons of Random Badassery, which you see in the feed here. But it used to be on the other feed. And that was called Random Badassery. This didn't exist. And then when Lamb couldn't do the show anymore, I was like, okay, I'll start doing it solo. But as I started doing it solo, I realized that meant I needed to do interviews um, because I didn't really, I found that I didn't like doing just me talking to a microphone for an hour episodes. So what I found was in trying to get people to let me interview them, the name Random Badassery didn't really work very well because it didn't sound very professional. So I got a lot of no's because they thought I was just some, you know, like morning talk show. Um, I don't know what they thought. I'm just guessing. But I got a lot of no's. So, and it didn't really fit what I was going to do. So I, I had to make a very difficult decision which was, I'm going to rename the show. And renaming the show meant that I was going to lose a huge portion of the audience. Because whether you, whether you know this or not, there are a lot of people that listen to podcasts on a consistent basis and yet still don't subscribe to them. Um, so when I changed the name of the other feed from Random Badassery to Creative Minds, I lost over half the audience in one episode. Wow, I didn't know it was that dramatic. And over time, it ended up being three-fourths. After like three episodes, I lost the other quarter. 
yeah, it was it was a huge drop. Um, and I can understand it was a completely different show. But my 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 thought but my thought was I've built all this audience. I don't want to just throw it away and start another feed at zero. So I had to either go start another feed at zero or take the huge loss. And then later I created this feed so I can move all these episodes in there. And then Lamb and I decided to bring it back to life. And even that, even bringing this show back to life um, was was weird for some people because it looked like I was being very scatterbrained. They didn't know that you and I had been talking about doing this for months, yeah. <laughs> for a very long time. Actually, technically, since you left, we had kind of always dreamed of doing it. But we talked about it realistically for months. Um, it's it's difficult to make those decisions, but sometimes you have to do them. And in the long run, it ended up being the right thing because that's the right... That name fits that show more than this one does. It might not be the perfect name for that show, but there are no perfect names. Um, and because of that, I was able to bring the show back and still have this name and not have to kill that show. So while it was difficult, it ended up being very much the right decision for the future. Um, do you do you have any more you want to talk about this topic? Or I have some questions I wanted to ask you about something else. Uh, there's something quick about it too. Yeah, I mean, don't I, be quick. I, Take your time. I think it's really, I think it's really important to, man, that's because I, I've had to do that in the past with certain things too, as well, where you can't let like the diminishing numbers um, of something like in your case, 50% and then 75% of the audience affect your decision. Um, because, you know, anytime you make any kind of catastrophic change, there's going to be a transitional period for all of the people in this particular case, the people you're working with, as well as the audience that's participated, um, you have to be willing to sacrifice that. And if you're doing it for the right reasons, those people will come back and in all likelihood, more will come with them. And that's why I would say, um, if we're going to pull any advice out of this for anybody listening, the one piece of advice I would give for somebody who has burned and rebuilt and burnt and rebuilt and burnt and rebuilt many, many times is if it's something that people can't see you're changing immediately, keep your mouth shut. Don't even tell them. Oh, sure. You know, like it, I've changed the website from Squarespace to WordPress. Well, not this one, but I changed the the website that we had before from WordPress to Squarespace to something else. I didn't tell people every time I did it. I just did it. And sometimes you just have to do things on the back end and not tell people. Because if you do tell them how many changes are really going on, they do start feeling, and that's that's a big lesson I had to learn, was they do start feeling the, un, the instability on their end. And that does not make people want to come back. Even though for some, you know, it doesn't actually affect them, it does affect them. You might not think that changing things all the time affects people, but it actually does. It affects their psyche in some way. And that was a big lesson for me to learn too. Yeah, I don't see how you could have possibly anticipated that going into it too. No. So I mean, and and I think that speaks to to all of the things that have happened with this show, both the the early portion as well as the things that you've done since. Is that every lesson you learn with this stuff is a hard lesson, and I think that it's very important. Um, you know, I, I feel like we're a self help podcast now. Um, <laughs> It's very important to, to know that you can take the hits. You'll be fine. Take the hit and learn the lesson. 
you know, and I think that that's, that's such a, that, that's such a valuable lesson in all of this is that, you know, the fact that we're, we're sitting here even talking about this on a show called Random Badassery two and a half years later is a testament to how difficult those lessons can be and how long they can take to learn if you allow yourself the ability to learn them. Right. Well, I think that that's why sometimes you see some of the most successful people, they look like they don't think about things very much. It's probably because they don't, you know, like all those fears and things like that. A lot of them don't have them. They just go do them. You know, like Elon Musk seems like a guy that just does something. Yep. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, we've worked with him. I can tell you that firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, 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 want, I have some questions I want to ask you. I don't know how many of them we'll get to. There's some very interesting questions. So one of the things I really liked about last week's episode was it ended up being about um, trying on ideas. You know, like, well, what do we think about this? You know, not necessarily trying to come to answers. And I do have one weird thing that we can talk about at the end so that people don't think we've abandoned that completely. And I'm sure you do too. Um, First question is, (laughs) Lamb, do you check out your balls? Like, do you give yourself self-examinations? Probably not as often as I should. Um, Wow, I didn't see that one coming. Um, (laughs) But yeah, as I get older, I mean, I, I definitely am more concerned about them than I ever was when I was younger. When I was younger, they were they were friends, you know, that I would hang out with and party with. And as I've gotten older, they're now more business associates and we're all running a business together, which is my body. Um, so I, I check in to make sure that they're still doing their job and that they're, they're, they're okay, you know? It's, uh, the reason I'm, I brought this up is number one, I like, I don't know. I don't know how I ended up doing. I was probably like peeing or something, but like I kind of ended up moving in the right way. And I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of an ache in my groin right there. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if it's it's coming from my testicle. And so I started giving myself a self-examination. Now, first of all, women talk about doing this on their breasts all the time. It's just as important for men to do this. And we don't, no one ever talks about this. And the reason that I thought it was really important to bring up is when I started doing it, I realized I'm like, I have no idea what my balls should feel like. <laughs> sure. Because we don't learn this stuff and it's so ridiculous. It's so important, but you know, like I'm feeling something. I'm like, oh, that's hard right there. That's supposed to be hard. So then I have to go grab the other one and go, okay, it's hard on that one too. Okay. That's part of my anatomy. And like for, for people who don't know this stuff, I mean, all you have to rely on is the idea of symmetry. It's like if, you know, like if your elbow is weird and then you check out your other elbow, you go, okay, the other elbow is like that too. I'm just weird. Um, I I think it's very strange why we don't talk about it. Is it because maybe because for men, the thing that we are supposed to be checking out is is a genital, you know, like it's a sex organ, whereas the breasts are not? Or is it just because breast cancer has gotten more publicity. I have a feeling that's probably more it. Like I assume, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, it'll be just as common for, for men to check their balls as, as it is for women to check their breasts. It, it always it always swings around that way. Um, you know, and, and obviously as awareness becomes a big part of the equation, then participation becomes more socially acceptable. And I think that that's the turning point. I, I'm going to admit I hate doing it. Um, this is something I never thought I'd say on a recording. My, my testicles are very sensitive. 
So it's not a comfortable experience for me. <laughs> There's a part of me that really wants that to be the, the title of the episode. But, you know, here's, here's another interesting part of that, too. Um, I, you know, our, one of our mutual friends and I were having this conversation the other day where um, it's also really, really, really important to check in with yourself psychologically every once in a while too as well you know once a year um in my case um you know i kind of sit back and i have like a day where i ask myself some some questions about you know how i'm feeling about the world how i feel about myself how i feel about other people what my relationships feel like um and you know if i feel like i i don't have a grasp on things very well then i try to find a way to 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 either a find some help for that or b um, you know, look for different answers, you know, like, is this a me problem? Like the one thing that came out from that is the anxiety I have about letting people down. Um, and I have to realize, like most of us have to realize that people's lives typically go on with us, with, with, with or without us. And most of the time, any imagine, any slight that you, you imagine with someone is mostly imaginary. And that's, both liberating and depressing, but it's also infinitely true. <laughs> Do you think you're an upholder? Do you remember, did you, you remember? I think we talked about before, not on the show, but in person, about the four um, tendencies, Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. I'm the questioner. You think you're an upholder? I I definitely think that I've evolved into an upholder, but I don't think that I have been my whole life. Um, and I think that. I am an upholder um, in my current situation with my friends and, and work associates because um, I feel like I'm emotionally pretty stable. Um, and so from that perspective, I feel like I have the, the tools and the disposition that allow me to be an upholder in a much more consistent and objective basis than most other people. For people listening, so they're not totally lost, I'll read what the four are. Actually, I think the one I was trying to say you is obliger. I think you might be an obliger, not an upholder. Um, you can decide for yourself, obviously. So upholder, so these all cross over. I can't show you the diagram, but I'll explain it best I can. So you have an upholder. An upholder is someone who meets outer expectations and meets inner expectations equally. And then you have a crossover into what is an obliger. So some people can be between these two. That's what a crossover means as I say it going forward. An obliger is someone who meets outer expectations and resists inner expectations. And maybe I should briefly just explain what that means. Um, meets outer expectations. In other words, you try to please other people, resist inner expectations. You don't do things for yourself very often. And then that crosses over into the rebel, which is a rebel is someone who resists outer expectations and resists inner expectations. They just don't <laughs> like doing stuff. And then you have the questioner. And the questioner resists outer expectations, but meets their own inner expectations. So in order for them to do something for someone else, it has to make sense in, in their logic. I am a questioner slash rebel. I'm actually in the middle. I, I think I tend a little bit more towards the rebel. By, by the way, I love the way you read that um, because the way I see it, that's the evolutionary that those are the evolutionary stages um, for emotional psychology in my mind. Hmm. So yeah, I feel I feel like I definitely am right now an upholder, and I don't think I have been 
most of my life. I think I've, I've for, for pretty much 90% of my adult life, I think I've been an obliger. Um, and like even, even the task of becoming, you know, breaking out the blog and, and doing that for my own mental health or checking in with myself, you know, mentally, um, all of those things are things that I would have never done for myself, um, in the past. So I definitely believe now that I'm, I'm, I'm much more an upholder than I've ever been. Um, I don't think that will last forever. I think at some point I'm going to turn much more inward and I'm going to become a little bit more of a rebel. Um, I, 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 I sense that coming already. Um, as I start working on the blog and I start having less and less patience for, for people, um, who don't live up to their obligations. I mean, that sounds horrible to say that, but people who don't quite live up to, to what they promise. Um, I think I'm going to lose my patience with that, uh, more and more and, and become, and working in the political arena, you definitely get that a lot more often than not. Um, I definitely feel like I'm going to become a rebel and then at some point, um, when I'm past the rebel phase and I realize I don't know shit about shit, I'm going to become a questioner. So I feel like, so I feel like from an emotional evolutionary standpoint that, that, that is actually the progression. And to be clear for everybody listening, none of these are better or worse than the other. They're just different. Each one yep. of them has a strength and a, and a weakness, um, strengths and weaknesses, multiple. Uh, I sure. think it's like 60% of the population is upholders and obligers is like, uh, I don't know. I can't remember. It's the, the second biggest group. I think rebels is the smallest group. Not that that matters, but it's it's just how you deal with the world and how we deal with other people. And the reason that you have these crossovers is, like as Lam was saying, is because you're either somebody like me that um, exists between two of them or because if you don't, if you fall weak to the weaknesses of one, it leads you to the other one. It pushes you into the other one. Um, like if you're an upholder and you don't listen to yourself enough, you become an obliger. And if you're an, sure. I'm not, uh, I haven't figured out how an obliger becomes a rebel specifically, but you guys get the gist. Um, well, well, I'll tell you how an obliger becomes a rebel. Cause I feel like I'm becoming that now. Um, when you live, when you, when you live up to people's expectations and they don't live up to yours. So you say screw it all. Yeah, it's because it's reciprocal. Um, and that's part of the reason why you become an obliger in the first place is because you want to be part of a team, quote unquote. And and as that as you realize you're doing more than you should for a certain team and other people don't don't and it's not it's not a judgment on the people either. You know, everyone just has their lives to live. And so because of that, you know, if something else takes priority, then something else takes priority. And that's well, it goes the way back it goes. to energy, right? You know, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's not that you're making judgments on people; it's you just get burned out. Yep. My, my so, that's what's difficult so I, for me, having always been a rebel. <laughs> so the, technically, I, I always <laughs> started out in the place that people end up when they burned out. Ah, <laughs> uh, that makes sense. But you see, I, I feel like I feel like you, you can't. And when we're when we're talking about this, I feel like throughout the course of your life, and sometimes in very short spurts, you flip flop between them um, in order to satisfy a specific need within your life. Right. Like I think if I were to look at it, I've never been an upholder. I've never balanced. Um, I do end up a questioner a lot. That's why I think when I answer the questions, I I equal on the questions. But when I really dig in, I'm more of a rebel than a questioner. Because sometimes a question to be a rebel. 
Sure. But at certain times, if I push far enough into that rebel, I do start peeking out into obliger. And this is when, I think this is when you see people that are really pissed off that somebody else went through a red light. That's, that's, that's when you, you know, that you're bleeding into obliger because you're like, I followed the rule. Why didn't they follow the rule? So it's like rebel and obliger mixed together in a way. And I, if I, if I burn out, I start to feel that way a little bit, you know, like, well, why isn't, you know, why isn't this functioning like this? And then I start getting caught up on rules, which is like the opposite of a rebel, but that's how they can cross over. It's very strange. It's in there's I I don't know where she got all this information. I read the book, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> I say a long time ago. It was like six months ago. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say we were talking about it not that long ago. <laughs> I read so much that that's a long time in book <laughs> in book brain for me. I I feel like that if if we're gonna get some participation on this episode, I think that's a pretty smart way to do it. And I feel like people, it would behoove everyone to take that test. Um, not necessarily because the answer matters, but because the questions matter. Yeah, I have to check. Um, I will warn you guys, it might, it might be one of those tests where in order to get the answer, you have to give them an email address. Um, so if it is, you don't have to take it. But uh, you can definitely Google the four tendencies and look at the charts and just kind of try to decide which one you fit. But either way, you guys should tell us what you think you are, which of those you are. And you should tag both me and Lamb. Um, you should do it on Twitter or Facebook. You know, if it's on Facebook, you can just mention Lamb and, and I'll tell him. Um, on, yeah. on Twitter, he's at the vacant room and I am holy, holy fool. Um, but we're not ending the episode. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, I have a weird thing to go over, but um, you have a list of topics too. And I want to make sure that make sure that you're getting your stuff in too. Um, we, we covered my Thor one actually, so I'm, I'm pretty open now. What do you got? Let's talk about the Lindbergh baby for a minute. No, man. I'm not sure. I think I was watching that conspiracy show again, by the way, if you guys got, can try to watch that and you got confused, it's confusing because the show is called conspiracy singular, (laughs) but the Netflix header says conspiracies. So I don't know what they're doing. Their graphic design part department must've had like a, um, spelling error or something, <laughs> but um, I think this came from that. I'm not positive. So, how much do you know about the Limburg baby? The situation. Well, I know the basics of it. Um, you know, I, I it was how old was a kid? Year and a half. That is not information I have, but yeah, he was pretty young. He was about that. Yeah, yeah, it was abducted from his home, um, and the body was discovered sometime later. Um, and the whole host of random conspiracies that came up that sprouted from it. I don't know that a lot of the specifics of it, but so what do you got? Basically a couple of details. The person who stole the baby put a ladder. The baby's room was on a second, second, second story. The person who, who kidnapped the baby, this is Charles Lindbergh's child, the famous aviator, Charles Lindbergh, uh, considered the most famous man in the world at the time put the ladder up to the window and supposedly snuck into the nursery and took the child. And then as Lamb said, I think it was three or four weeks later, they found him um, dead in the woods. So the, the man who was finally arrested for the crime was Charles Hartman, Hartman, Hartman. I think it's H-A, my spelling, this is handwritten. I think it's H-A-U-T-M-A-N. 
He was a German immigrant, and he was convicted, and he got the chair. He never admitted to committing the crime, but he also never really talked. Um, it's, there's a lot of details about that. That's not the direction I'm necessarily going to go. But he was very strange in the whole thing. And everybody, that's where a lot of the conspiracies came from. Everybody felt weird about him being the person. And what ended up happening, the way they caught him is the money that was given, that Lindbergh gave the ransom money, was marked bills, and he was caught passing one of the marked bills. So that's how they caught him. Now, one of the questions, and this is the one I'm going to focus on, is was Charles Lindbergh himself, by the way, the, the child's name was also called Charles Lindbergh, but was Charles Lindbergh, the adult, involved in the kidnapping of his son, in the kidnapping and murder of his own son? So why do people ask that? People ask that because, first of all, he refused to let the cops negotiate with the kidnappers. He would only do it himself. The FBI and the police, he, t- he, t- would not, he would not allow them to do it. And this was back in the day where if you had enough power, you could make something like that happen. And he was friends, I think, with the governor. So the governor just basically told him, let him do it. And this is really weird to me. This, I think this is the point that got me paying attention to the episode. So the, the kidnappers wanted $100,000. Lindbergh negotiated with them and said he would only give them 50. What father negotiates the price of the ransom for their baby? And especially a guy like Charles Lindbergh, who was infinitely wealthy at the time. That's weird, right? And then he refused to let the police follow him to the drop. Well, that's that's one of many weird things. I, one of the things that stuck out to me about it, the, the thing that stuck out in my head was the, the, the lack of fingerprints. Um, yeah. On, on a, I mean, how, I mean, so for people listening, know. they, they fingerprinted the baby's room and I don't know if they fingerprinted the ladder, but they fingerprinted the baby's room and they didn't find any fingerprints, which at first you go, okay, that's not that weird. The guy who broke in was wearing gloves. No, no, no. No, they found no fingerprints. Nobody's fingerprints. They didn't find Charles Lindbergh himself's fingerprints. They didn't find his wife's fingerprints. They didn't find the nanny's fingerprints. They didn't even find fingerprints of the baby itself. Yeah. Now that's fucking weird. That is fucking weird. And <laughs> that makes no sense. So unless so someone had to have gone through the room with a fine-tooth comb, um, with a, a wet towel and literally wiped vigorously wiped in some cases every single surface because you have to remember like fingerprints are typically applied by by body oil and oil is not water soluble easily or quick that mean to literally find no fingerprints not even a partial fingerprint anywhere in that entire room of a single person that lived in that house is physically impossible without some kind of human intervention and this was at a time where where fingerprints weren't really well-known as an investigative technique, which makes it a little bit even stranger. Um, There's something I can't remember. There's something to do with this case and the future of fingerprints. I think it's uh, something to do um, with Jig or Hoover. It's a silver nitrate thing, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's something that comes out of that. But this is the thing. This is, I didn't think about this until you said it. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the other weird thing about this, and then I'm going to remind me to go back to the fingerprint thing. Okay. Um, 
because you just kind of put something together for me. So here's where things get a little bit weird. People don't, a lot of people don't know this, but the little baby, baby, we'll call him baby Lindbergh. Baby Lindbergh actually suffered from macrocephaly, which is for people who don't know, big head. So um, think of Andre the Giant, but if it only happened to your head. Um, I think maybe Rocky, what was his name? Rocky from Mask. I think he had macrocephaly. Yeah. Um, And it leads to other internal deformities. So you're wondering why I'm bringing that up. Well, here's something a lot of people also don't know. Charles Lindbergh studied eugenics with Dr. Alex Carroll. Eugenics is basically the the belief in selective breeding that if you know there's mutations that they should be cut out of the human bloodline. In other words, Nazis. Um, and Lindbergh studied with this famous eugenic doctor. So one of the theories posits if he believes that the weak should be rooted out of the human bloodline as a man, Lindbergh. And his baby has macrocephaly. What does that say? You know, does he want the world? Because the thing is, it takes a little bit of time for these things to start developing. And if you watch the videos, there's a video of the baby. It's not starting to show quite yet. So the theory is, what if Lindbergh had, we'll say, Charles Houtman kidnap the baby? And his intention to kidnap the baby was not to kill it, but to take it and hide it in some kind of institution somewhere. And then everybody just say that the baby was stolen. And Lindbergh would know where it was and he could support it. But as far as the public knew, the baby just ceased to exist. But in the process of kidnapping the baby, something went wrong and the baby died. Well, that was the the original posit, I mean, from... I'm sorry, one of the original theories was that um, Lindbergh himself was trying to, to get the baby out the window and dropped the baby. Now, here's another weird thing about it, too. The baby, when they found the baby, it had been, there were their parts missing. And it it had been associated with animal predation. In other words, animals ate part of him. That's what they said. But in this show I was watching and this expert said, she's like, that doesn't quite make sense because some internal organs were missing while some external were left. And she said, I don't know an animal that would pass the lungs to eat the heart. In other words, why wouldn't they eat the lungs first? Sure. So the theory is that if macrocephaly also leads to internal deformities, once this child was dead, did they remove the organs so that people wouldn't know? And then that takes me back to the fingerprint thing, which I'd never thought about this before. So say the baby is deformed, right? And Lindbergh knows this. What if that nursery was a setup and no one had ever been in that room before and the baby was kept somewhere else because he was a deformity? And that's why there's no fingerprints, because no one ever went in there. Yeah, that's crazy. Huh, fascinating. Very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, by the way, I think that that 
Lindbergh was definitely involved somehow. There's too many I, things I, pointing I, at I, Yeah, I absolutely believe that. I mean, the fingerprint evidence alone. Like, even even if... Because no one else has that type, that type of access. I, I would like to challenge people to do this um, at some point, which is take any piece of furniture in your house, like a, a, I don't know, an armoire or table or something like that. Try to clean it as best you can and remove every fingerprint from it. And like test it for fingerprints after the fact. I guarantee you'll find at least one. Yeah, and now do that for a whole room. Yeah. With baby stuff in it. <laughs> That is literally impossible. So I actually, your theory sounds plausible considering what we're just describing about fingerprints. Like it's just literally impossible to remove all fingerprints without an incredible amount of time and scrutiny. Right? Like if you knew nobody had ever been in that room and you just went in, like they said the room, like nothing really was out of place in the room either. Yeah, it looked pristine. Yeah, that was that was one of the things. And that's why they thought that he might've been trying to take the baby out the window because... It looked, you know, like it, it was more sensible from the way it looked that somebody was coming from the inside going out than from the outside coming in. Because if you were coming in the window, you'd probably knock something over or step on the sill. But then the problem with that theory is like, if you're going to fake something, why bother taking the baby out the window? Why not just walk it out the front door? Sure. Unless you're hiding it from your mother and the nanny. I mean, your wife and the nanny. Yeah. Which is possible. He might have been the only one that was in on it. Yeah, I mean, considering his 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 interesting eugenics, it, it's very possible that he was the only one who's in it. Awful, awful, awful. If that's if any of that's true, that would talk about rewriting history. Like most famous man, worst man ever goes back to our "Would you kill for your child?" thing. <laughs> And it it poses a a more interesting question is, oh man, I I have a hard time even saying this sentence out loud. Um, If the quality of life of your child is horrible, would you be willing to kill your child to lessen the pain of that? Mm. Yeah, like um, Terry Schiavo? Yeah, exactly. That's a good example. Yeah, very difficult question. And that's that's one that I don't even know how to begin debating because, man, I don't know. I, I literally just want to throw that question out there. I, I, I personally don't have children, so I don't know what it would be like to watch my child live in excruciating pain. I just don't know. Yeah, the, the thing that's difficult about that is if you push far enough on either end of it, they both make sense from, um, neither of them are cold-hearted. They both yeah. make sense from a parental perspective. You're like, I don't want them to suffer because I love them. And then there's the other end. Like, I don't want anything to ever happen to them. Because I love them. Yeah. And that's what makes that one very difficult. That's a brutal one. Well, guys, this is where you come for the questions that don't have answers. <laughs> <laughs> or the questions that you never, ever wanted to vocalize. Including the people, including you and I, who, like, I never thought I'd actually say that question. How about <laughs> Well, that's what I've been, I've found myself, you know, even though like I'm still every once in a while finding weird stuff, what I'm really fascinated with right now is these kind of questions where it's like, what is that? What would you do? And so I've found myself writing down little questions for the show, but I also like that we just kind of randomly talk. Yeah. This particular conversation has taken some very, very odd turns that I did not anticipate. Yeah. It's truly random. We went from 
basically content creation to testicles <laughs> to the Lindbergh baby. Yeah, let's not forget in the entire check in there about physical and mental health and ball checking. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, and the four tendencies. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's cut it. Uh, also, a quick plug um, just maybe if I have an audience, then I'll, I'll be more on top of it as well. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, um, the four tendencies, um, I my blog is going to be at thevacantroom.com as well. What are you going to use for it, by the way? Um, right now, I'm starting with Square, um, but I may evolve that into something else as it becomes. I, the reason why I like using Squarespace is because it forces me to get the heck off my phone. Mm. You should look at that blot.im thing. Yeah, I, I will. I mean, the moment you mentioned it, it sounded really enticing to me. But then I, I go back to my overriding priority, which is I need to put my phone away. Oh, yeah. But you could you could do that just by having a text editor on your computer. Um and dropping those into your Dropbox folder. That's true. But it's, then it adds a step. And it's $20 a year. Jeez, mm, <laughs> that's, really, that's really sexy. Yeah. Because, yeah, I'm paying, I'm paying that stupid 16 bucks a month for Squarespace right now. I can't say that. It's a great service. I apologize, Squarespace. You guys are totally worth 16 bucks a month. It's, um, it feels stupid when you're only doing one thing on the website. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I manage a couple of websites, so it's not that bad, but still, um, I, I, I'm so used to getting things for free, which is, again, one of the things that we talk about, you know, if it's, if it's worth, if, if something is good enough, be willing to pay for it, because that means that that person can continue doing it. Right. Yeah. See, one of the things that I always, that makes me always want to pull away from things like Squarespace is not because I don't want to pay for it, is literally because the amount of features that are available will just distract me. Sure. So something that's like, oh, I can only do three things on this site. Cool. <laughs> that's what I'll do. Um, okay. So make sure you guys go check out Lamb's blog and follow him on social media. Um, on Instagram and Twitter, I am at The Vacant Room. And I am Holy Fool Productions on Instagram, Holy Holy Fool on Twitter. And you can search for Holy Fool Productions on Facebook and uh oh hoyfulproductions.com is the website but if you really want to check out the blogs that i've been doing that i mentioned i'll have links to the ones i mentioned before but go to patreon and become a patron support holy fool support random badassery and you can support creative minds and i only i made it simple there's only one tier five dollars a month keeps it keeps it easy if you're a patron you get everything that's it no uh, privilege levels at least not for now you know, if I'm making T-shirts or something in the future, we'll change it. But for now, that's good. And uh, until next week, hey, please go over to Reddit and share some stuff with us because it might come up in the episode. We uh, we appreciate all of you. Oh!